Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let's pray that you would change us from the inside out. And that looks very different from the world. Uh, as we, uh, we look at a passage here in 1 Peter um, that calls us to give all of our anxieties to you, uh, and instead we don't give them either to anyone or not to you and someone else. It calls us to humble ourselves that you would exalt us at the proper time. And uh, often we can spend a lot of time trying to exalt ourselves without looking like we're exalting ourselves. So I just pray that your spirit would change us from the inside out uh, to be uh, things that we say, to be witnesses, to be light uh, to people, to a city, to families that need it. In Jesus' name, amen. If y'all will, turn again to 1 Peter 5. And so, I want to read, we're going to read the entire chapter, which is short. Uh, 1 Peter, chapter 5, beginning verse 1. This is Peter, Jesus' disciple, apostle, and he writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way you are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, so what, uh, you know, what we've tried to do today... Uh, and, and we do try to do it every Sunday, is we make one whole worship service, uh, as in like, you know, tie the music together, but also even things that we'd call announcements. Uh, so from Hunter leading the students to camp, to the ministry of Vacation Bible School, to children, uh, to the ministry of someone joining uh, and we haven't even mentioned global ministries and the team going out to Honduras. 
But we try to do this, and, and I know sometimes it can be very difficult to be here at 10.30. I understand that. It's a Sunday morning, okay? But each aspect of this service is important to show, really, the entire life of one church. And it's very important for all of us uh, to see. Now, we've been, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks since Easter, and you might see it on, a, on the paper program, about church people. Uh, and I say that because church people is about, like, how do we do this thing called church together? Like, what, what is this supposed to be? Uh, is it, uh, you know, is it just preaching? Is it just music? Uh, is it coming for part and parcel? Is it, uh, is it just Sundays? How do we, how do we operate uh, as a people, as, as a body? And over the last couple of weeks, we've chosen, or really, I guess I've chosen, uh, parts at the end of the Bible, in the New Testament, where either Paul or Peter now writes to church people about how to do this thing like community and life together and relationships and be in church, be in church together. Uh, and I think it's good for us to think about this. Uh, we'll actually end this series, I guess, next Sunday. It's Pentecost. For some of us churchy folks. Uh, and it'll be about the Holy Spirit and Spirit-infused power. Uh, and then we'll move into some summer messages about... Uh, actually, we have some, some preachers that are coming. Uh, I will promote this now. Dolphus Weary, Nettie Winters. Uh, two brothers of mine who are, uh, will be talking about community transformation. Being a church in this community. But, again for today, how, how do we... How do we live together? And a big part of that, and what this passage kind of speaks to in different parts, but is uh, how do we navigate conflict? I hate conflict. Anybody like conflict? I mean, like, I, I really don't like it. I, I tend to avoid it. How do we mitigate conflict? Because, you know, when two or more gather together, the Bible says, Jesus is definitely there. Okay? And also, different opinions are there, okay? which can, can lead to conflict. Uh, I've got this book, and I want to read some excerpts, and, it is, and I highly recommend it, by the way, uh, if you're a reader. It's called Safe People, uh, because this book would say they're safe people and they're unsafe people. Uh, this book was recommended to me, or to my wife and I, uh, by a counselor uh, who we've seen, and I've been very open about this, I, all the Actually, all the pastors that I admire uh, usually go to a counselor sometimes uh, or at one time or another, and we have too. And so the counselor recommended this book, and uh, I highly, I mean, it is, uh, again, if you're a reader uh, and if you have trouble with relationships, which that would mean everybody in here, uh, and a reader, this would be helpful, okay? So, let me, it can't read the whole book, obviously, but there's a chapter specifically on church people who are safe or who are unsafe. You ever met an unsafe person in church? Is a church full of safe people? It ties this. This book was written by Dr. Henry Cloud. Uh, he was really, he, he made himself kind of known by the book Boundaries, which is an awesome book too. My wife and I read that for our premarital uh, about uh, trying, and we're still working on it 15 years in, setting good, healthy boundaries. But Dr. Henry Cloud wrote this. Okay. It starts, let me just say, a lady 
goes to her counselor depressed because she shared all of her hurts with her small group. And the small group just responded saying, you know, you're really not that close with the Lord. Uh, you know, you're not praying enough. You're not reading the Bible enough. Pretty much kind of slammed her. So she came and said, you know, I thought the church was supposed to support me. And here it almost feels like they rejected me. Okay. And so Dr. Cloud says the church, listen to this, the church is not a totally safe place. And it does not consist of only safe people. As much as we would like for it to be totally safe, the truth is that the church has to be seen the way God describes it. We must, if we're going to have biblical views of relationships and people and live the way that God wants us to live, see the church as he describes it. Our faith must be able to square with the reality of life. And we find, and as we find it and with the reality that the Bible describes to us. Let's look at these two uh, realities. He goes on, anyone who has been church very long has been hurt by people in the church. Um, Is that true for anybody? Okay. For in the body of Christ, we find some harsh realities, judgment, pride, self-centeredness, manipulation, abandonment, abuse, control, perfectionism, domination, every kind of relational sin known to humankind. The walls of the church do not make it safe from sin. In fact, the church, by definition, is composed of sinners. Yes. And to complicate matters, church, and we say this over and over again, church is supposed to be, by its very nature, the family of God. Therefore, church activates our most primitive and deepest longings because we want a perfect family. And we do. God designed the church to really be a second family here on earth. And often we take into church the same longings for security, love, that we take into our families of origin. And for some, as in their original family, the wish is not only disappointed, it can be crushed altogether. What are we to do with that reality? I'm going to continue on. Just bear with me. It's pretty good, isn't it? Good? Truthful? Okay. More truthful in the Bible? No. Okay, it's written by a human, but, okay, it's still, we tune in on it. Then he goes, on the other hand, many of us have felt that the body of Christ has nurtured, loved, taught us in ways that have radically healed us. Thank you, Miss Margie, for sharing. I love what you shared. It was very um, beautiful. Thank you. And I hope that it's true for you and, and you, Brian. Through the acceptance and love of other believers, our character changes. And we have slowly let go of things that shackle us. We hear other t- others testify to that reality. They were destroyed by their families or the world, and they were saved and healed in a local church. Someone or a group in the church reached out to them, and their lives were radically changed. So the church can be a healing place, a place where lives are transformed, where powerful love and healing can take place. Is the church safe or is it dangerous? The answer is, it's actually both. Sometimes we are fortunate to find good relationships and other times we run into disaster. He goes on and talks about how the Bible actually describes this picture of the church being both. If you want to take notes, if you're taking notes, you can look back on these passages. We're going to come to 1 Peter here in a moment. But Matthew 13, 24 
24 through 30. Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares. Good, fruitful food, tares, bad, growing together. And the Lord says, let them grow together. And so he uses this example about in the church, there can be both. Then he uses the example in Matthew 13, 19 through 23, about how the Lord scatters the seed. Some it falls on rocky ground. Some it falls on good ground, but there are so many thorns and thistles that it chokes the seed where it can't be fruitful. And then there's seed that falls on good ground. You can look back, but this is saying this is depictions of what the church can be. And listen to this. It is that third group where we get really confused. The seed falls in good soil. And it takes hold. They're people in faith. But it's amongst thorns and thistles. Meaning that the people can be so self-centered and caught up in temporal concerns that they are not producing loving fruit in their relationships. And this kind of well-intentioned but not growing person can be hurtful as well. The last thing I would say on this, and I know I've read a lot, but it's really good if I hadn't said so already. Safe churches, he does characterize safe churches. In his opinion, Dr. Cloud, what this looks like. One place where one can find safe people is in churches that have a safe character. What is that? And here's what he would say. And I'm going to read this and just... I don't know, yeah, think about bellwether in this context. Are we here? Where do we have room to grow? And we always have room to grow. And that's not just people in seats, okay? It's actually deeper than that. It's the heart, spiritual life. Safe churches, grace is preached from the pulpit and is the foundation for how people are treated. Truth is also preached without compromise, but also without a spirit of judgment. Church leaders, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, are aware of their weaknesses and need to grow and are open about their hurt, pain, failings, and their very humanity. Instead of trying to look like they have it all together and being insulated from confrontation and change, they are in a process of healing and opening up to their own safe people for support and accountability. The church uses small groups to touch people's lives and sermons focus on community in the body of Christ as well as doctrine. The culture is one of forgiven sinners, not self-righteous religious Pharisees. The church, instead of being a self-contained unit, thinking it has all the answers, is networked into the community, availing itself of input from other sources such as other churches, professionals, counselors, and organizations. Teaching has a relational emphasis as well as a vertical one. Relationships between people is seen as part of spirituality as well as their relation, relationship to God. The teaching sees brokenness, struggle, and inability as normal parts of growing with God. There are opportunities to serve others through a variety of ministries. Really good book. Quoted a lot out of it. We want to be a safe church that's filled with both safe and unsafe people. And it's tough. It's tough. Uh, but how we do that is found uh, in Scripture and growing in Christ together. So to shift to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, I would say this. How, how do we navigate between uh, being a safe church with unsafe people in conflict at times? How do we do this? Peter 
talks about it, and he emphasizes really two aspects here in this passage, unity and humility. And we have got to always be a place, in my prayers, that every local church would be a place of both unity and humility. I think humility creates unity. I think unity actually creates humility because you're humbled by the work God does in reconciliation, in restoration, in really being a body, not just of friends, not just people with similar interests or backgrounds, but the supernatural body of Christ, the family of God here on earth. So I believe he's talking about unity and humility. And that's what we must have. Not just be a safe church, to be his church. Always. I want to start with unity. What must we be united on as a flock, as a congregation, as church people? Well, I talked about we're different, okay? So bear with me, we're different. You know, you can actually have great unity in diversity. Everybody know what diversity is? That would mean being different. You can have great unity in diversity. How? Well, first, little kind of big thing called the Trinity. You know, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Who started everything, who was present before any creation, not just on earth, but in the stars, cosmos, universe. There was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How are they united and yet distinct? Can't answer that for you today. Won't be able to answer it next week. We'll see that great mystery when we meet the Lord. But there's diversity. You actually see God the Father mentioned in here. uh, Very often, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 6. Verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Verse 10. Will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. I believe that verse is very reflective of the Trinity, even though it doesn't mention the Spirit. Why? Well, it says the God of all grace called you to His eternal glory in Christ, someone who's different but also God, will restore, establish, strengthen, support. How does He do that today? He does that through the Holy Spirit at work. Unity and diversity. But there's simple ways to see unity and diversity too. Think of like the best meal you had. I had a great meal last night. Kudos. Sweetie, it was great. Got a, made me a steak. I don't know what I did right. Maybe clean your car. Uh, okay. She made me a big steak with some pasta and even, what was the other, the green stuff? Oh, kale. Yeah, it was, uh, I know. Yeah, kale. It was a great meal. Let's put a little twist on the kale. Is the kale different than the steak? Yes. Is the pasta different than the steak and the kale? Yes. Is it one meal? Yes. yes. A team. I love baseball, some of you know. Usually, like, a, a team really focused kind of on one aspect is not going to win at all. They may, you know, major leagues, they may win um, a lot of games in the regular season, but you get to the playoffs. Like, if a team only relies on the three-run homer and doesn't, like, have a lot of, uh, you know, folks getting base hits and butting people over, and it's, it's just not, if you rely just on one aspect. So diversity helps in unity. It helps build the team. We need to be united on that. United on Christ. Christ Jesus. The chief shepherd, verse 4, he's called. Peter, witness to the sufferings of Christ. How he has suffered for you. Again, verse 10. Called you to eternal glory in Christ. That he is 
He's the, he's the shepherd. We, we put this stained glass window up here for a reason. Uh, it is indicative of this church, that Jesus Christ goes after the one. He goes after the lost sheep there. We'll come back to that. And then I call them the big, the big boys, Peter and Paul there. You know, they're growing in the Lord. Big sheep. That's what we want to be. We want to grow in the Lord and always go after the one. Unite on Him. United in Scripture, that all Scripture is without error, I would say. That all Scripture points us to Jesus. That it's one grand story and narrative pointing salvation in Christ. And we need to be, oh, you know, in Scripture, I love this. He says, Peter says, verse 10, stand firm in it. He says, I've written to you briefly to encourage you and testify. This is the true grace of God. He says, I love it. He adds an exclamation mark in my trend. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. And then last, and what we'll kind of get into here for a minute, we need to be united on church leadership. I'm not talking about a pastor. I'm actually talking about elders. Because very rarely in Scripture does the Bible mention the pastor. Paul does to Timothy, to Titus, as pastors. But he writes to them to talk about elders and what they look like. And we've covered that before. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1, if you want to look to it. That's not today. But elders leading the church as under-shepherds. Under-shepherds. That the chief shepherd is, is the real head of this church. I mean, he's top of the org chart. But that the elders are under-shepherds. And this passage really talks about who they are and also what they do, which is really one thing uh, combined in that word shepherds, to shepherd the flock that God's entrusted to you. So we have five elders right now, myself included. Uh, I would say this, I mean, they're, they're, they're not all here. It's summer and everything. But uh, uh, I love them. Uh, I think I could say they take a bullet for me. I think I could say, I think I could say, take a bullet for them. <laughs> but... We talk a lot, uh, a lot, a lot of what we do is mitigating conflict. And often to share, you know, we, that doesn't mean we always agree. We've had some, we've had some disagreements that can be sharp. But we hang in there with one another to forge unity by the Holy Spirit. So as under shepherds uh, and being united in church uh, leadership, uh, what, what do these elders, what does Peter say that they would look like? I mean, verse 2 and 3 is focused on them, being willing, being eager, being examples to the flock. Um, the la- this past week, and to give you some specifics, we have an elder meeting every Wednesday around bellwether time, you know, around 4 o'clock, okay? That would be bellwether time. It kind of runs late. And it really can be a forum both for our thoughts, ideas, but also, and the reason I want to say this now is, is for members too. Like any member at any time could schedule a time, that, that time with us to talk about any concerns or any conflict. And the elder role is really to help members mitigate conflict, navigate conflict. Being eager, being willing being examples. Anyway, the meeting this past, uh, this past Wednesday, we talked about our desires for the elder team 
moving forward, like not just in two months, I'm talking about two, three, five years, what we want it to look like. And we want it to have such a firm foundation of trust and love for the body, okay, and that the body would have trust in us, built on the gospel in scripture and on Jesus, as well as that notion of the one over the 99, that every, and, and forgive me if you're visiting here, but uh, as elders talking just to members here, that, um, that each member can have a voice and a forum and come in and talk to us. And it's that same idea of the one over the 99. So Jesus said that over and over again. We started this church on that principle. The one is more important than the 99. That stained glass window is what that means. The one is important over the 99. And, you know, the Lord's changed me a lot in my life and probably changed you. You know, your, your kids are so important for you. You know, if God gave me the choice, if God gave me the choice of either, hey, you know, as a, as a minister of the gospel, you could make an impact that changed the world and, and your name could be associated with the likes of like a C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer, who are the two guys I admire the most. You may not know them. Or your son, Logan, could have a flourishing life. I, mean, I know what I would choose every day, twice on Sunday, you know, that my son would have a flourishing life. And I say Logan, some of you know, I mean, he has some challenges, and who knows? He may have the most flourishing life. You don't know. I mean, my other kids may have the most challenges, you know. But somebody said, you're only as happy as your saddest child. You know who said that? Abigail Adams. One son was president of the United States. The other son was an alcoholic and took his own life. Now, I say that being like every person matters. The one over the 99. And here, as under-shepherds, uh, it is the growing people in faith, growing people spiritually, and having that, that attitude of love and trust to help both mitigate and navigate conflict. So I would say this last on the elders, then I want to move into humility real quick. But we have five elders. Uh, elders serve four years, then have a year off, a sabbatical year. They can come back on if they so choose. The Bible's very clear about elders wanting to serve. Our process of selecting elders is that elders would choose to nominate elders, those who they see fit, but then bring it before the membership body and have 40 days to hear any, anything contrary to that person. You'll hear more about this probably later in the year. But I am proud of our elder team and want us to be united more and more with that idea of elder leadership. There are elders now who won't always be elders. There are some of you here who probably will be elders at some future in the life of this church. And I think that's the way God orchestrated. But now, really in closing, I have two big hopes, okay? Talking about conflict and also with the the elders. Two big hopes. One hope is that any conflict is brought to the elders in this church, okay? Any conflict is brought to the elders. And two... And this is a bigger hope, a grander hope, a greater hope, that there is no conflict needed to be brought to the elders. Now, that's maybe a pipe dream, but that's a hope. Now, first, any conflict is brought to the elder team. That's a hope. Why? Because often conflict is not brought uh, before a, a trusted body, a loving body. And instead, okay, instead what happens is 
you know, you may have folks that say, well, I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to cause a riff. Or they could be like, you know, I, I don't want to look like that, that person. And look, self-image can be very, very important to all of us. I mean, I get that. But what happens is the conflict can remain in darkness. It's not exposed. Uh, and often maybe you have, and look, I've been to churches and seen this, okay? And probably so have you. And so if it's not exposed, if it's not brought to a trusted body, then uh, the conflict grows and it, it remains hidden. Or it can, uh, it can lead to gossip, as it often does. Uh, it can lead to getting people onto your side, okay? Uh, and forming alliances and coalitions. It happens in churches all the time. There's no trusted, uh, loving body uh, that does preach grace uh, and truth. And to tie to this passage, verse 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around every church, might add, like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. You know how he devours? You ever heard the expression, you know, eaten up by pride, eaten up by bitterness, eaten up by resentment? Eaten up with envy. If it just came from that verse, it might have. I don't want any member, the elders don't want any member eaten up with, well, with gossip or resentment or bitterness or conflict. It's a trap of the devil. Verse 9, Peter's clear, resist him. Firm in the faith of the gospel, knowing that brothers and sisters throughout the world experience this suffering. But the church... To have unity in conflict would say, hey, we're united in Jesus, in the gospel and scripture, in our church leadership, and believe in that. It helps mitigate, navigate uh, conflict, and it can even get to a point where there is no conflict to be brought because at the end of this chapter, there is peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that happens. Last thing I want to go through is by humility. Humility. He emphasized humility over and over again. Verse 5. Well, verse 5, younger, be subject to the elders. There's humility there. He means younger in the sense of a spiritual life and spiritual growth. Although, I will say this, just for uh, a lot of elders, pastors, don't recommend uh, young folks being elders in a church. Actually, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who I admire quite a bit, president of RTS, gave a whole talk that I heard uh, about this very thing, that often people need a, a little bit or a lot more life to mature them in the faith. But he goes on, Peter does, clothe yourself with humility. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Same word again, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time Casting all your cares on him. Clothe yourself. Put on the clothes of humility. What does that look like? Uh, It looks like often um, thinking about and asking yourself different questions. One, you know, thinking about maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I'm not right. Maybe I have blind spots. Thinking about maybe I don't have to have the last word and can just receive uh, and take a word from someone. Asking yourself the question... Uh, Is this conflict, in this conflict, am I reflecting Christ in this? 
Is this conflict that I'm in an opportunity for unity and humility? Am I looking at things? Am I looking at people with a win-win attitude? Or am I just looking at them as an adversary? Humility. Am I reflecting Christ in this? Am I living too much in the world? Or am I being an example of a power outside this world? Those are just a few questions. You could probably come up with more. But that point me, I think point us to humility. Being a humble people. And humility brings unity. We humble ourselves. A picture of this, and I'm going to close here. A picture of this being unity and humility together is verse 10 through 14. I love this. First, there's humility. Verse 10. Verse 10, it's humility because it's not saying that you save yourself through career, ambition, family, great kids, if all of them end up president of the United States or whatever, or, or play pro sports or, you know, whatever. But that God, who calls you in Christ, verse 10, He will restore. He will establish. He will strengthen you, even after you've suffered for a little while. To Him be dominion. Not to us. Not to you. Not to me. To Him be dominion forever. Great humility there. And then unity. And if you know me and you've heard my... I love these... These ends of chapters where he just talks about people, Paul, Peter. And it just didn't have to be thrown in. This shows us, uh, shows us unity in the body of Christ. Sylvanus, a faithful brother, says, I've written to you through him to encourage you. She who's in Babylon, we don't know her name, but somewhere else, the body of Christ. And Mark, my son, a son in the Lord, a spiritual son. This picture of unity in the body of Christ in the church, in a local church, in a greater church. How can we do this starting today? It's something we do every Sunday by taking communion. I don't know how you take communion, but communion really is an example and opportunity for unity and humility in the body of Christ. First, as I've said, I said this last week, to take communion, you have to receive Christ, as in you have to be a Christian. And if you are a Christian, taking communion is really receiving Christ again. And you're coming forward to humble yourself. You're saying, I can't do it. I need you. I need what you've done, Lord. Your body broken, your blood shed for me. I need that. And it's unity. You see that we all do it together? This is not just some rote deal that we do every Sunday or saying, hey, yeah, we need to do communion. It should be a picture, and I want it to be, of unity and humility, receiving Christ, humbling yourself coming up, and doing it together. That's the gospel. Uh, if you have anxiety, if you have, if you have cares, uh, if you have problems in this world, there's no five-step solution that I have for you. There's one-step solution. Jesus in the gospel, found in the Bible, and be reflected by his church, the body of Christ. I want that for us. I want that for students. They go to camp. I want that for our kids Baker's Bible School, for uh, people young and wise as they go to nations like Honduras this summer, us in a worship service that's uh, together but centered on the chief shepherd. So as you come forward, look at him and know that you can cast your anxiety on him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, grow us in unity and grow us in humility for unity in you always. In Jesus' name, amen.